Chapter 3 There was a most remarkable young man. We are told that he walked from village to village, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Not just a few, or occasionally, or gradually. Wherever he went, eyewitnesses tell us he healed everyone suffering from a disability or an infection instantly. As this became widely known, we read that they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. It is written as a simple statement of fact and repeated in many places, calmly and with complete conviction. Jesus Christ did what no other human being had ever done before, and none has ever done since. He opened blind eyes and deaf ears, restored shriveled limbs, healed leprous skin, remade body parts that were missing or damaged beyond repair, and even raised the dead. He had absolute authority over every form of physical and mental illness. So we read, All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus saw pain and misery not as a trial sent by God, nor as the consequence of some particular sin, but as the obstructive work of a malicious enemy. We are told he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. There was a poor woman, severely hunched, unable to straighten her back, and he asked the bystanders, Ought not this woman, whom Satan has bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Then we read, He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. His followers knew the sense of purpose that he had, the aim and intention in all he did and ultimately the great achievement of his life. They tell us, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. When a man unable to speak was brought to him, Jesus likened the demonic power oppressing the dumb man to a warrior guarding a captured castle, determined to keep possession. But then he said, When a stronger warrior attacks him and overcomes him, he will remove the weapons he relied on and distribute his plunder. And immediately, with the demon gone, the dumb man could speak. But the battle was about to enter a crucial phase, and Jesus added an ominous warning. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The powers of darkness, seeing how much ground they had lost, resolved at last to crush Jesus Christ. He was hustled through a mock trial, stripped, beaten and nailed to a cross. 
Abandoned by his friends, he died. Evil had triumphed, or so it seemed. But what happened next is proof that wickedness may do its worst and still be overcome. Three days later, to everyone's astonishment, the tomb where his body had been laid was found empty. The stone rolled back, and Jesus himself stood there calmly in their midst, alive and well. He taught his disciples again, encouraged them and commissioned them. Then he went to prepare a place and a time when he will come back to complete his work. In the province of Galilee and Judea, when blind eyes could see and withered limbs were made strong, the kingdom of God came to a small place for a short time. When Jesus comes again, his kingdom will come everywhere and forever. As it is written, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth where everything is exactly as it should be. Then we shall see life on earth as it was in the beginning and as its maker intended it to be. The Bible describes it as the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke long ago by the mouth of his holy prophets. This does not require the creation of new species or new forms of life. It is the restoration of the original creation, where all may live in peace and harmony. We are told, the cow will graze with the bear, their young shall lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The baby shall play by the hole of the cobra, and the toddler shall put his hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my sacred hills, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the eternal God as the waters cover the sea. If on the new earth the lion will lie down with the lamb and the cobra no longer endanger the child, then we can envisage what their original relationship was like. In the paradise of Eden, the lion would never think of harming the lamb. But the lion at some point became a flesh-eater. Its teeth grew longer, its claws sharper, its stomach able to digest meat, and its desire was now for flesh. It became a predator, so the lamb must now be defended by the shepherd. If the original lion was designed by the Lord God, it was then genetically modified by a mind with a very different agenda. If that is so, then this present world does not truly reflect the character of God. It leads many people to a confused and false perception of the Creator. And this is exactly what our adversary would wish. The Lord God is blamed for what his malicious enemy has done. How often we hear it said, I can't believe in a good God when there is so much pain. Or, if there is a God who made all this, 
then he must be an evil monster. That is a very reasonable point of view, so long as we assume that God has made it all like this, and wants to keep it the way it is. But our world is not essentially evil. It is a good world gone wrong, like a beautiful house ruined, or a sound operating system corrupted. And we have seen much health and harmony in it too, and much recovery from illness and injury. Around us we observe both the pleasant and the unpleasant, the wholesome and the defiled, the violent and the peaceful. We have a knowledge of both good and evil, and we often see good overcoming evil. We are looking at a beautiful creation spoiled and ravaged by powers of darkness, and we see a loving Heavenly Father defending and rescuing and strengthening what is about to die. And we look forward with keen anticipation to the day when Jesus will come into his kingdom and all things will be perfectly restored. In the beginning, when all creation was very good, scorpions surely had no stings and snakes no poisonous fangs. Bacteria served some useful purpose and pathogenic viruses did not exist. The big cats ate vegetables and herbs. Mosquitoes and vampire bats sucked juice from fruits. But at a point of time, their genes were altered. Their form and function changed. They became dangerous and predatory and parasitic as we know them now. Yet the weak and vulnerable are not abandoned to suffer and die without assistance. We have seen how immune systems and healing processes provide much help in the battle for survival. And if the predators were brilliantly reshaped for aggression, there are even more remarkable examples of redesigning in the creatures that became their prey. The Thompson's gazelle was always built for speed, but she acquired an instinct to run in zigzags and so outmaneuver a pursuing cheetah. The common toad was always slow, but is now covered with warts, making its taste most unpleasant to an inquisitive stoat. The sun-bitten opens his wings above his back to display two enormous eyes that will scare off any hungry snake or caiman. The Barbary partridge will trail her wing as though badly broken, leading a fox far from her chicks before flying back to them. Many other creatures use subtle camouflage. There are insects resembling leaves or sticks. There are geckos that look like rocks, crickets like moss, seahorses like coral, fish like gravel, and mountain hares that turn white in winter. Some animals will shed a portion of their body to preoccupy a carnivore while they escape. Others will flock and move in ways that confuse a predator. Some can project an unpleasant fluid 
or erect sharp spines. The variety of defence strategies is truly astonishing. In the beginning of creation, such protective colorations and instincts were not necessary for any of these animals and birds. The defensive structures and strategies were added to secure survival in conditions that had become far more dangerous. This adds subtle nuances to our appreciation of the natural world. Many living things we can simply enjoy as God's creation, beautifully designed for communal life in a peaceful and harmonious environment. Other species make us more uncomfortable, superbly equipped for hunting and killing smaller and more vulnerable creatures. But the moments which probably bring us most pleasure are when we see little animals and birds escape the predator, survive the danger and live to fight another day. The reason is that we can identify with their plight. They are the ones that most closely reflect our fragile human condition in a dangerous world. We all love the little fellow who outwits the big bully. And so perhaps does God. We have seen that when the natural world was formed, everything lived in perfect equilibrium. Ecosystems were ideally balanced. Fruit and vegetables were plentiful. The earth was well watered and fertile. The Lord God said to our earliest ancestors, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Shortly afterwards, as we have seen, conditions changed. And then they changed again. The catastrophe of the fall was followed by that of the flood. If a detailed account of a global flood were not in the Bible, we would have to infer something very similar from the geological evidence. On every continent, complete fossils are found, with every piece in place, pointing to extremely rapid sedimentation before the drowned remains could rot away and the bones be widely scattered. All over the world are vast depths of sedimentary rock, with consecutive layers all arched and bowed, showing they were folded together while still wet and malleable. The evidence indicates not long, slow processes, but a singular catastrophic event. The Genesis account says, The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. If this is so, it's hardly surprising that we read every living thing that moved upon the earth perished. Of course, some people don't think the entire world was covered with water at this time, or that every land creature died, apart from those with Noah, in the ark. But as Jesus and his earliest followers believed it, we're in good company if we do too. 
Jesus tells us, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Peter recalled how God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. But a more limited local flood, or even a parable of a flood, would raise exactly the same questions about the moral character of God. If the Lord is good, would he deliberately let so many people drown, and animals too? Perhaps he might, if the struggle between good and evil has reached a point where evil is about to win and the damage is irreparable. And the Bible describes it exactly in these terms. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was filled with violence. Extreme violence was found not just in humans, but in reptiles, mammals and birds too. We read that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So the Lord God declares, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for they have filled the earth with violence. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. To wipe it clean and start again is something many a computer repair shop has advised and done. This may be the only way to recover from an irreversible corruption or a fatal error. The elimination of disease is the only way to health. We can imagine the scene as the primeval land surface disappeared beneath surging masses of water released from vast underground caverns and from the lower atmosphere. As the Earth's crust settled, it became unstable, and extensive cracks allowed the lava of the core to burst through. Continents, now freely floating on molten magma, collided, forcing mountain chains to rise above the waters. Sediments from the grinding rocks were carried by stormy torrents to fill the ocean depths. As the skies were darkened with volcanic ash, global climatic change brought the bitter cold of the Ice Ages. And perhaps at this point we may see the start of evolution. Emerging from the Ark, only the fittest could survive in the rigorous new conditions. And most of the largest and most dangerous predators quickly perished. The survivors became widely separated by mountains and oceans, and the enforced inbreeding would heighten their distinctive physical traits. At this point, finches probably began to evolve their various varieties, descending from an ancestral pair of finches. And so did dogs, humans, and every other form of life. To imagine that the first finches dogs and humans, evolved from a primeval soup, would be a different proposition altogether, and far harder to believe. Large areas of the globe 
were now covered with ice and snow. The bare rock surfaces offered very little fertile soil for the limited vegetation that survived the surging waters. Seedlings would be vulnerable to drought, floods, pests and diseases. And climatic change on this scale would be sufficient to wipe out many types of fruit and vegetable previously providing nourishment for humans and for animals. In the hot plains of Judea and the barren Sinai desert, the dearth of edible plants would soon make starvation a real danger for nomadic people. Over much of the Earth's surface, vegetarians simply would not survive. Hunting, herding and the eating of meat became imperative. At this point, Noah received fresh instructions. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Later, many wild and domesticated animals were specified in the law as food suitable for God's people. Jesus himself helped to catch fish, cooked it for his disciples and ate it with them. He lived with us in this impoverished age between the idyll of the garden and the paradise to come. Of course, predation and disease now serve to keep populations down in a world of restricted space, limited resources and rapid reproduction. But those parameters could change. Sooner than we may think, the inhabitants of the new earth will enjoy the abundant garden produce known to our earliest ancestors. A profusion of grains and nuts, roots and beans, leaves and fruit and berries that we ourselves have never seen before. But that lies in the future. We have looked back and we have looked forward. But what of our present circumstances? The battle between good and evil is raging all around us. So what is the Lord God doing now? And what is the devil up to? And what are we called to do ourselves? <laughs>